0: Everyone, welcome to another episode of Fresh From the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornelians My name is Madeline Dublier, class of 2020, and I'm one of the co-authors of Wall of Wonder, Cornell Women Leading the Way in Science, Technology, and Engineering. The book is now available on Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. To learn more about the book, check out the first episode of this mini series. I'm so excited to be joined today by one of my favorite Wall of Wonder women, Hillary Lashley Renison. Hillary started her eight-year journey at Cornell in 2001. She went on to earn her B.S. in Mechanical Engineering in 2005, her Master's of Engineering in Mechanical Engineering in 2007, then her MBA from the Johnson Graduate School of Management in 2009. Since graduating, Hillary has held numerous roles at General Electric and founded her own science, technology, engineering, art, and mathematics education organization called Tinker and Fiddle. Hillary, welcome to the podcast.
1: Madeline, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be with you here tonight, so thank you.
0: Yeah, thank you for joining us. So, to start off, you spent eight years at Cornell, which seems like quite a long time, especially <laughs> to me, just spent four. Was there a specific aspect of your experience at Cornell that kept you in Ithaca for so long?
1: I think there were a few um, that, may, and it maybe was unique to my circumstance. I did join Cornell young. I started Cornell at 16. And so, for me, it was really my formative years, the first four. Um, and I suppose I just didn't have enough. Um, and so I did stay to do my, my first master's. And when I did my master's, I actually worked uh, for Cornell in the diversity programs of engineering uh, for the engineering college. And, you know, I really I think that just doubled down my connective tissue to the campus um, because I was a part of not only fulfilling my career aspirations of going on for, for an advanced degree, but helping other students um, to pursue their educational uh, aspirations. Um, And I think through that process, I got greater clarity as to what I wanted to do. And I knew that uh, the intersection of technology and commercial was ultimately where I wanted my career to to be realized. And so staying and and going to the Johnson School just made a lot of sense. Um, And at that point I was six years in. So (laughs) Um, additionally, my, my, my family does live in Ithaca, full disclosure. So when I moved to when I moved to Cornell for undergrad, my mom relocated, and so it really was home, and for me, very convenient to to stay and pursue all of my credentials there.
0: Awesome. So you said you worked for diversity programs in engineering when you were getting your MEng, and we've worked with diversity programs in engineering throughout my work with Society of Women Engineers, and Sarah Hernandez was actually the one who introduced me to you, so I'm curious to hear a little more about what you did in that role.
1: Yeah, Uh, so I started right out of college. Uh, I was 20. Probably, you know, it's funny, the office was new and and really reformatting what it was going to be. Uh, In my undergraduate experience, it was actually the women's um, office, the women's engineering office, plus minority. So there was like two separate um, offices co-located supporting diversity initiatives. And so the year that I actually joined the team, we had a new uh, director, uh, Diana Jones, who took over and was really restructuring how we were going to do diversity and inclusion at Cornell and College of Engineering. Um, It was a phenomenal experience. She was a amazing coach and mentor. And I think being a young millennial, I probably got under her skin <laughs> for times that I would like to admit, looking back, um, because you know I, I thought I knew everything. And, um, uh, but I, I, I grew tremendously in that role. It, it really humbled me to be a part of the experiences of the students to really continue to motivate them and let them know that it was possible. Um, as a woman of color myself, I was one of three African American women studying at the College of Engineering. My class, uh, and so I'm, I'm proud to say that while I was a college associate for DPE, I think we 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 saw like double or triple the number of of African American women graduate. Wow. Um, in 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 the years that I was serving, so it it really felt uh, like I was a part of something much bigger than myself that office went on to win the presidential award for STEM initiative. Um, Sarah Hernandez remains a very close friend of mine. And so it feels like I was a part of something really monumental while I was studying studying my master's.
0: And were you involved in any of the diversity in engineering organizations while you were an undergrad? Because I know they've grown exponentially and are such a force within the College of Engineering today.
1: Yeah, so Nesby was my first home, um, home away from home, and I felt immediately pulled into that organization. I, I also used to attend SWE events, um, Shippie events. I would go, I would go for anything, you know, typical college student. Whenever there was pizza, yes, somebody, I was there. Um, but yeah, I would say Nesby was was the organization I was most involved with in National Society of Black Engineers, and I really just took such a strong pride in not only Um, engineering excellence, but being socially conscious, and uh, yes, so very much engaged in the student orgs.
0: That's awesome. So my next question is, how did your interests and career aspirations
1: develop throughout your time at Cornell? Yeah, so when I first joined Cornell, I went there with the intention of studying mechanical and aerospace engineering, because I wanted to understand the planes I would fly one day really well. Um, And I think part of that comes from the fact that I was first-generation college, and in the context of career aspirations, I really didn't fully understand what I can do with engineering, but I knew that I really thought um, planes were were cool, I loved to travel, the idea of traveling, Uh, and so being a commercial airline pilot seemed like a a really cool career. Uh, Fairness to me, I'd gone to an aviation academy for my high school, and so had really been groomed for that. And so I thought this was going to be a great way to differentiate myself going into um, an airline industry. When I got to Cornell, um, physics was, you know, really my strength. And I, you know, I was mentored by one of the, the physics professors to really understand what I can do with engineering. And he advised me that, you know, traveling and seeing the world can happen through solving really big problems for people. And making people's lives better. And that's when I, I really started falling in love with, um, with engineering in in the context that I understand it today. That's such a cool story. And I think
0: we'll get to that a little more in a few questions, but um, I'm wondering if that professor was also your favorite professor at Cornell, or if you had another, or if you were there for eight years, it's also okay to have multiple. Yes.
1: So, you know, though he was fantastic, my absolute favorite professor was Professor Charles Williamson. And oh, me too. So I don't <laughs> <think laughs> I, I know. I think he actually retired, or no, he's still no. there. Yeah, he oh, taught yeah. my senior lab this year. Such a
0: good soul.
1: Yes. Absolutely ph- phenomenal, um, always made me feel welcomed. I didn't always feel welcome sometimes. And he made it a point to know my name and always say, good morning, Hillary, in a class of 125 people. And um, I just thought that was just so endearing. Like I would come into class, I would stumble across you know, all the other students and find my spot and he would say, good morning, Hillary. And then he would start class and um i just i always felt seen um i always felt you know that he was there to support questions that i had um and so for me he he goes like in my book all time favorite um not only in undergrad but my cornell experience and one of my favorite people period so
0: that's so awesome to hear because, yeah, he's still there. I think he's nearing retirement, but I didn't interact with him until the fall of my senior year and always just saying hello, ended up going out to dinner with him and another friend before everyone got kicked off campus, but just such a kind, caring person that, oh, I'm so that makes me so happy. <laughs> um So going back to maybe a little bit of what you are talking about earlier, but I always love hearing people's stories about how they discovered their interest in engineering, and you have a really interesting high school experience that helped you find this path. Can you share more about it?
1: Sure. Uh, So when I was 12 years old, um, I had kind of really, I was demonstrating a really strong fascination with model airplanes and things like that, and maybe I was becoming a nuisance to my parents constantly the hobby shop and get get a new one. Um, so my mom offered for my 12th birthday for me to have a flight lesson. And, you know, it was like this hundred dollar intro thing special she probably saw in the newspaper. And so my first experience in a plane ever, ever was me in the front seat with my flight instructor um, at the yoke and my father who'd never been playing in the back And so what a cool experience for him to have his 12-year-old daughter, you know, piloting. I do air quotes when saying that, piloting, you know, the plane, the first plane he ever flew in. Um, But it was such a powerful experience. I remember like pulling back on the yoke and taking off. I remember, you know, um, pushing the throttle. I remember... Um, making my turns once we got into a safe space that the instructor had had had, you know navigated us to and in that moment I fell in love with technology and the power of technology and what it could mean Um, and I say that because I was I was of you know a very much a working class family um, one of six children and I was number five, which means I got everybody hand. I got everybody's hand-me-downs, and um, the, the the it was a brother above me and a brother <laughs> underneath me. So it meant that I was always just like a boy. And so, you know, what a unique experience for someone like me to have had at that age, and it was formative. And so, um, I you know I, I, I doubled down on my interest in flight, and I used to draw out the fuel systems for them, draw out cockpits and put it on my walls. And so my mom wanted to help cultivate that interest and I think keep me preoccupied in a positive way. And so she found this aviation academy that was offered through BOCES, um, which is a vocational training uh, program that we have in New York State. And so for two years, that was my high school experience. And and I was the only female um, in my class um, and half the day we flew. The other half the day we did, you know, traditional coursework at our home school. Um, and it was definitely a unique high school experience. I think it gave me a lot of tangible, hands-on exposure to technology, so that when I stepped onto Cornell's campus, um, I was grounded in a reality that maybe, quite frankly, many didn't have exposure to at that point in time. Um, but yeah, that was that was my high school experience. It really shaped me, informed me, um, and cemented my interest in in engineering. So
0: you're you graduated high school at 16 and you were out on Long Island, right? So Correct. how did you end up at Cornell and then was it your mom or your
1: entire family that came out with you? Yeah, so um interesting a lot enough, it probably was the, some form of fashion, the diversity program office. Um, In its original inception as a women in engineering office, uh, they had contacted my high school and and were looking for um, talented women in science and math to come out for a day and see what Cornell was like. And that was my first time, I think, past Westchester. (laughs) Um, You know, so it was this big drive, five hours. It felt like forever um we got there and I absolutely fell in love with the campus I mean who can't yeah it's a beautiful campus and you know strangely enough Cornell was one of the few schools I applied to I did early decision Um, so I applied to Cornell and a handful of our our local state universities and I got into Cornell so uh, that's how that transition happened and my mother you know uh, soon followed and and um my my father and her bought a house in Ithaca, not far away i I still remained on campus um for most of my studies, but it was nice to be able to go home and distress every now and then, um, yeah, I sure she found comfort in being close, yeah,
0: I think my dad probably would have moved there if he could have too. <laughs> Okay, so the first time we spoke, you wanted to work at the intersection of technology and business as you just retold. And you've been at GE for 10 years now. So what types of roles have you held that align with this original goal? And I'm interested in hearing what sorts of roles you're
1: interested in pursuing in the future. Absolutely, so I'm currently in a role that is exactly this. I'm a senior director at GE in the licensing group. And so my day-to-day job is to monetize IP. So, I work with external parties. I work with Inside GE to find technology, know how, patents that we think um, may be best suited to be leveraged by external partners. So, that's, you know, I really do feel like I'm living day to day right now what my vision was um, many, many years ago when I decided to pursue an MBA. Um, other roles that have really helped this was uh, include, you know, just I think a number of product management type roles. So when I joined GE, I worked in renewables, and I joined on a leadership program that really shaped me to be a product manager. You got to learn about the product, how to sell it, how to make it, how to operate it, um, and how to you know, climb and fix it. So it was wind technology, and it was a two-year program, and I did exactly that. Um, And I came came out of that program and and went on to do an engineering uh, energy consulting job where I used to model and simulate how power plants worked, how often they would be dispatched. And so there was definitely that intersection of the technology itself, how it would be called, uh, you know, and and definitely the economic factors of what constraints you might have on a grid, what um, constraints you might have from a fuel price standpoint, what is the cost of that energy going to be. Um, And when it's economically dispatchable, we get dispatched first. Um, Then I continued on to do a marketing and strategy uh, program within the gas power business. And um, definitely again, at the intersection of technology and commercial, more forecasting and understanding what we believe to be demand, uh, what type of units are going to be required to meet customers' needs in the near future. And then I, I, you know, I, found, I found a home at GRC, which is the Global Research Center at GE, where I got to touch technologies from healthcare, energy, aviation. Um, and now I'm still located at that same facility, but leveraging not only the Global Research Center, but our aviation or healthcare business uh, to monetize some of our technology. So um, where do I see myself next? It's, an, it's a relatively new role. So I see myself here in this role for, for quite some time. Um, But, you know, I've been so fortunate at GE to continue to evolve and learn. And, um, you know, whenever I feel like I need a new challenge, it's not hard to find um, that next opportunity and to advance. So I've been there for 10 years and looking forward to another 10.
0: That's great. So you found your home at GE, but uh, that wasn't necessarily the easiest thing. Similar to many members of the class of 2020, you graduated with your MBA in 2009 in a recession economy. So how did the job searching process go for you? And what advice might you offer to other members of this year's graduating class?
1: Absolutely. So not only did I graduate in 2009, I graduated with an, an advanced degree in the MBA Um, typically people are 27, 29, um, being 23, 24. Um, And the fall that I should have been there recruiting and and looking for that full-time job, I was in Paris doing a semester abroad. Um, So, you know, they always, you know, they say, what is the phrase? The best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. I thought I was going to go back to a particular company Um, and then it really wasn't a cultural fit in the context of which group they wanted me to join. And so I found myself in the fall of 2008, completely regrouping and trying to re-strategize what was going to be my full-time offer. And that was a lot of pressure. I remember coming back in the spring and there being very limited opportunity, um, a lot of pressure from the career center to, to pick something, to sign up for something you'll figure it Mm -hmm. out. Um, and I, I stood strong and said, well, no, I know I want to be in clean technology. I know I want to work for a company where I can grow and, 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 and work in, in clean tech, but other technologies that I think are impactful, that, that, that change the world in a positive way. And I, I remember going out to dinner with a faculty member and an alum, alum named Jim Lyon, who had, was a chief scientist at, at GE Global Research Center, you know, funny enough. And I shared with him my, my, my aspirations of being in clean technology. I shared with him my aspirations of, um, you know, working in commercial, uh, intersectional commercial and, and technology. And he said, hey, you know exactly what you want to do. No need to settle. You know, it's a bad market right now. Go do something interesting that you would not normally do the next four or five months. Come back in the fall and restart. And it's so weird because I had just met him that evening. It wasn't like you know long term mentor, but that was just, I guess, the permission I needed to be different and not just follow the status quo of getting something signed before May twenty fifth came around. Mm-hmm. And um, I did exactly that. I sat down and I planned um, with one of my faculty members how to do uh, an internship that would be focused around sustainability. Um, and also at the intersection of sustainability in the bottom of the pyramid. And I wanted to see, you know, what would it be to help bring clean energy to rural parts of the world? And we landed on an internship in in India. And I spent four months, you know, working um, in India with, you know, the small company making point of view solar products. And I grew so much in that experience because, I, I was able to see how my my western mind thought about solving the problem and how the eastern mind their local solutions were thinking about having how to solve the problem and it was a humbling experience and a, a real a really powerful one to recognize how important it is to co-develop solutions with your intended target customer um, so yeah that was that experience you know one of these things that silver lining Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest takeaway for me was be comfortable with stepping out of the status quo. If you know what you want, have the confidence that you can get it and, you know, pursue interesting things that are going to make you smarter, greater, you're going to learn from, and everything else will fall in place. When I came back that fall, I had, I applied to two jobs at the two companies I wanted to work for, got both offers, (laughs) but I wanted to go to, um, and the rest is history. So. That's how I navigated the 2009 recession. And I have faith that uh, you guys are going to be able to navigate the 2020. That also just
0: seems like such a perfect example of what you're talking about with your original dreams of I want to be a commercial airline pilot and that professor being like, no, there are big problems to solve wherever you go. And like there are opportunities there to be an engineer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could have been miserable in a job um, because it you know, was the thing to do. Or I could have grown being in an environment that I wouldn't have had any other opportunity easily to do, you know, later on in life. Um, And so I'm happy I picked, I went, I went the path of doing something different.
0: Yeah. And I love the advice about just doing what you think is best. I think there's a lot of people reconsidering right now of I'm not going to do what I feel like I'm being told by the normal progression of events to do. Like, what can I do right now that is Safe to do and both beneficial to what I want to do in the future. So I think the same thing applies. Although I don't think there will be many people uh, traveling abroad to solve (laughs) engineering problems this time.
1: Very true. Very true. But there's so much to solve at home. Yes. Solve at home, particularly now during these times. So.
0: Yes, so I'd like to move on to your other venture. So in addition to your amazing technical accomplishments, you've also founded the organization Tinker and Fiddle in 2017. Can you tell us a little more about what Tinker and Fiddle is and how you arrived on that idea?
1: Yes, so Tinker and Fiddle is a STEM education company for, you know, we work with K through 12 populations. Our real sweet spot, though, is, you know, third through eighth grade. And we do experiential learning. So we do coding classes, um, you know, gaming through Python courses, uh, music. Um, So we do, we we leverage Ableton. We teach kids how to use Ableton. They make their own music, their own beats. Um, And we do a wearable tech program where for those fashionistas or nistas out there who want to embed LEDs into their sneakers or their clothing, um, we do a class on that as well. And the idea was how do we meet children where they're at to engage them in technology and help them become comfortable and and technically literate, um, particularly populations that have historically not been engaged in the tech space. Um, I myself am an African-American female. And so being able to make sure that other children of a similar background know what's possible uh, with engineering um, and doing it in a way that's fun and engaging um, really was a passion of mine. So it started as a kind of really a passion project. Um, it's our self-sustaining business at this point. Um, you know, what I what I make from it, I, I funnel back into the company to continue to deliver programming that I think was going to be effective. Um, and we work with local schools, we work with local libraries in the capital region of New York. And um, I'm so excited by what our team has been able to create in a short period of time. We've been um, an LLC for three years and um, have gone from a 10K investment to a self-sustaining business in that timeframe. So.
0: That's awesome. And is this like, at what point did you find that like, okay, I've got my work figured out, like now I'm ready for this? Or was it really like, how did you make that leap of faith?
1: Yeah. So I'm very fortunate at GE. Um, we have relatively flexible work schedules. And so once you get the work done and you meet the objectives, you know your time is your time. And so, you know, it's not it's not unheard of for me to pop out at three o'clock once a week to teach a class, or have the flexibility I need to, you know, leave early on a Friday afternoon um, once things have been completed earlier in the week. So I think I, I, that that's definitely something that's that may may or may not be unique to GE, but um, definitely something that has, I've been able to leverage as I as I built Tinker and Fiddle. Um, additionally, you know, I think I came to a point in my career where I felt like I had a good connective tissue inside the company. I, I, I know how to get things done. I have a strong network. I have credibility in the context of delivering on, on, uh, goals and objectives. And I felt like I had that bandwidth to do more. Um, and so I think when you, when you do have that time and space and you want to give back, um, you should take advantage because you're not always going to have that time. I'm sure there's gonna be a time in the not so distant future where I have a small family of my own and it's not I'm not gonna have that flexibility that I currently have to give back in the way that I'm currently. And I've grown so much through the exercise of starting my own company, and there are things that I've learned at in within Tinker and Fiddle that I've pulled back into my career at GE that's made me stronger. Um, the biggest being presentation skills because teaching is very hard. <laughs> Keeping the attention of an eight-year-old my goodness, you know, really, it really stepped up my presentation skills at work.
0: Yes. Uh, So kind of, I was thinking about just, oh, eight-year-olds in person are so difficult, eight-year-olds in online are even more difficult. So yes, with, with many states opting for remote learning this fall because of COVID-19, there's an increasing concern that students from communities without significant resources will fall further behind, which is something personally that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, what role do you think non-formal education plays like tinker and fiddle in this new education environment? And do you have any plans to engage students virtually?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we actually rolled out our pilot this July. So this, this July, we rolled out a partnership with the city of Albany, and we are working with the summer youth enrichment program to teach their Friday enrichment, and we're doing it virtually. So I actually had the opportunity, they said, hey, you want to come down to a um, particular location that they had, you know, computer lab. And I said, no, I want to teach this virtually because I want to see what's possible in the context of my content, how it needs to be reimagined to be able to be delivered virtually. And I'll tell you right now, it is hard. You know, um, the technology that the kids have—it's not—it's not equitable across the board. Um, so everybody's working from a different toolkit in that regard. Um, and when you're in the classroom and able to be fluid between students and, and help as you need, is so much easier than trying to do shared screens through Zoom. So uh, we're we're learning through doing this summer, and uh, at the end of this sprint, we're gonna regroup and think about um, what went well, what do we do well, um, where do we need to improve, um, and how can we uh, deliver this effectively in the future. So one of the things I'm doing in parallel is just also enabling those who I know will be in the classroom with the students. And so I know some schools, in our particular area in New York are going back this fall and they are doing socially distance, you know, they're doing pods and the teachers are going to need content um, to help uh, kind of uh, get through the day. So, you know, you're going to have, in in some cases, a a teacher in some cases um, a, a teaching assistant. And I'm working with the schools and figuring out what some of that teacher assistant curriculum can look like. So it's, it, it's enriching, it's meaningful, um, and it can be delivered uh, at, on site with the teaching assistant. So more to come, but I think the biggest uh, takeaway for me is you know, don't be afraid of change, lean into it. Um, right now it feels messy, it feels challenging, it feels a little frustrating that I don't have the perfect answer, um, but you know, we're gonna learn and we're gonna grow through it and we're gonna be better for it at the end.
0: Yeah. I had no idea that you guys had bridged so much into more of like the formal education space with actually partnering with schools and stuff. How did you kind of develop that credibility? Because I mean, you have engineering degree of MBA, but you're not a teacher by training. So Absolutely. what did it take
1: <laughs> like to gain those skills? And I, I feel it every time I teach. No. um, So the way that we got the first school was through doing what I what I was doing at Makerspaces. and we got some news coverage and uh, I think through Facebook it being posted or shared, one of the one of the schools reached out and asked if we would consider doing something with them. And you know the, the school is part of a broader Albany City network and so the schools they report to each other what they're working on and other schools hurry before you knew it, I had two or three schools calling. So, um, you know, I I think I've been very fortunate in that regard. It happened opportunistically. um, And because I'm a small company and local to the area, I'm able to work closely with them and shape a curriculum that works for what their particular use case is. Um, In the context of credibility, it's interesting. You know, one of the things that I heard from one of my school partners this past month was what they love most about me is the fact that I show the kids that you can be, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to gassing myself up here, but they said you can be pretty and you can be smart. And I'm like, really, that's why you hired me? And she's like, yeah, I mean, it's really important to show the kids that. And I think what she meant was in, in, in sometimes in, in the environments that these kids are growing up in, they get a lot of uh, negative um, Lessons from TV about what it is to be, quote unquote, popular or what it is to be successful and what type of job you may do to 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 obtain that that status and to have me come in with my team um, and work on engineering and math and coding with them. I think it really broadens their their perspective on what cool is Um, And so, you know, classroom management is not a joke. It's a skill set. And it's a skill set that we invest in learning and and being able to get stronger and stronger every time we teach. But yeah, it's it's been an interesting transition from boardroom and corporate office to classroom. (laughs) Um, But it's very enjoyable and it's a nice way to change up the pace in a day.
0: That's so cool because I think you talk about the you can be pretty and you can be smart and like just the importance of role models and the power that like so few people kind of have particularly engineering role models to begin with, particularly women. And then so like even bringing those people into the classroom, um, even if they're not like the head teacher is so important because it exposes students to something they probably don't see every day. And the, which
1: was a huge goal of the book too, so. I love the book. I have four copies of it. Oh, so I'm so shameless. And it's so funny. I went over to my neighbor's house the other day and I brought a copy of it and uh, they have two girls. And so, um, you know, they said, oh, what, what page are you on? I said, 44, <laughs> whatever the page was. I was like so quick to answer. So they all thought it was so funny. I'm like obsessed with this book. But so thank you. It was I'm so glad I <laughs> spoke with so many amazing women and um I'm obviously a super fan of it that I bought copies. <laughs> I love it. Uh, So
0: one more kind of STEM education type question. Uh, Many parents are curious about what they can do to help their children foster an interest in STEM, particularly when they are not involved in a career in this area themselves. So as someone who has had a technical, a successful career in technology and has worked in an education space, what advice do
1: you have for those parents? Mm, Patience, Uh, trial and error, uh, you know so that to me translates to grit um and being real, willing to let your your child know that you don't know everything um and and that's okay um having that vulnerability to say you know i don't know the answer to that but let's see if we can figure it out with today with with so much information being online it literally is at your fingertips to look up cool, fun activities that you can do at home with your, with your kids um, that are going to be super impactful, that are going to be fun, and that, you know, you're going to be able to do through trial and error and learning. And for me, engineering really is exactly that, like, you know, I don't know anything that really um, truly novel or truly difficult that goes right the first time. And so having the patience and the fortitude to try and try and try again, I think not only helps build a, a really strong interest in science, but builds um, a muscle of resilience, period. Whether they go into something, you know, they can go study English if they want, but knowing that if you don't get it right the first time, it doesn't mean you give up. I think is a really powerful lesson to teach.
0: That's definitely one of those of us who have been in engineering have learned many times. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) absolutely. So, my final question is throughout the process of creating Wall of Wonder for Abby, Catherine, and me, the co authors of Wall of Wonder, this title came to represent a group of women who inspired us to challenge ourselves, um, grow our aspirations, and think critically about the ways in which we can use our technical skill set to improve the world around us. So, I'm curious to end who is on your Wall of Wonder?
1: So, I literally um, had her on my Wall of Wonder, literally. During Black History Month, and that's Mae Jamison. So um, at work, um, I had um, her up for you know the full month of February, and I also had her for March because why know, not? <laughs> Women's History Month as well. Yes. Uh, she was such an inspiration for me growing up. Uh, a black female astronaut. Wow, you know, she's also a Cornell alum. Also a Cornell alum. Give you know Stanford its love as well you know Stanford. yes, um, but yeah, what an inspiration to to every you know to all girls, um, but especially being a, a black girl in America, um, knowing about Mae Jamison, um, this a dancer, an actress, a businesswoman, a doctor, and an astronaut. It was like it was just such an inspiration. And I actually had the opportunity to meet her at Cornell. Wow, talked um via the diversity programs in engineering office. DPE does it again. <laughs> and I got a picture with her and I, I can't find the picture anywhere. Oh no. So I'm gonna have to meet her again some and take another picture so I can have that. But absolutely my hands down woman Walla wonder. That's awesome.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation. It was a pleasure talking to you and I'm. it makes me so happy to learn even more about your story. Um, and I'm so excited to share your story with even more people. Uh, To our audience again, if you're interested in purchasing the book or for, uh, or learning more about the project, we've also got tons of coloring pages and activities on the website. You can visit the Cornell SWE website at www.swe.cornell.edu. So, thanks for joining us for another episode of Fresh from the Hill. Music for Fresh from the Hill was written, produced, and recorded by Kia Albertson Rogers, class of 2013. You can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu. For more information about the podcast, young alumni programs, and how you can stay involved with Cornell, visit our website, alumni.cornell.edu/slash young alumni. Hillary, thank you so much.
1: And now I want to just say thank you so much for the work that you and your, your co-swee leaders did putting this book together. I can't imagine, you know, what a heavy lift it was to coordinate, to aggregate the stories, to the beautiful artwork in it. Absolutely phenomenal. So thank you for really doing what you did to put this book together. Thank you so much.